This is the Urban Political, the podcast on urban theory, research, and activism. Welcome to an Urban Political special. My name is Philip Weitzel, and on behalf of Marcus Kipp and Ross Beveridge, I am delighted to present you with an entire episode of exclusive insights into RC Twenty One, the annual conference of the International Sociological Association Research Committee Twenty One. On urban and regional development, which took place online last week from Antwerp, the theme of the conference was sensing and shaping the city, and it focused on how citizens experience the fragmentary, unequal, and contradictory realities of global urbanity. We are delighted to be joined by Elisabeth von Weimers, a postdoctoral researcher at the Urban Studies Institute at the University of Antwerp. And Sino Stelink, professor in urban sociology at the University of Antwerp, who are members of the conference's organizing committee. In this episode, they will be sharing their experiences of organizing an online conference with us, as well as their own insights from RC Twenty One Antwerp. Our third guest is Claudia Zeldin, a Brazilian architect and urbanist who is currently working as an Alexander von Humboldt Research Fellow and visiting junior professor at the Center for Metropolitan Studies of the Technische Universität Berlin. She'll be delving into two of her favorite RC Twenty One sessions. Firstly, she'll be sharing her insights on the Sound and the City session organized by Sandra Jasper, and secondly, those on the Fascism, Urbanism, Aesthetics session organized by Günter Gassner. Claudia will argue that these two sessions are both great examples that showcase the importance of urban studies, and that help us make sense of our contemporary political and social realities. Back again with us at the Urban Political is Roger Kai from York University in Toronto, Canada, where he is a professor at the Faculty of Environmental Studies. Professor Kai was organizing three roundtable talks at RC Twenty One on the subject of the urban governance of COVID nineteen. He shares some of his key findings from the discussions, as well as his personal experience of taking part in a virtual conference. Our next guest is Louis Bigmans, an assistant professor in architecture and urbanism, affiliated to the universities of Ghent, Antwerp, and KU Leuven. Louis will share snapshots with us of her conference experiences, in which she will speak about some of her highlights, ranging from the critical discussion between Taya Blokland and Steinusterling to Ash Amin's keynote on. Space subject: Vernaculars of endurance in daily slums and streets. Luz will also be sharing with us her key takeaways from the discussion she organized on the topic: Understanding refugees' homemaking practices and housing pathways against the backdrop of the broader housing question of European cities. Last but not least, Manuel B. Albers, professor of human geography at KU Leuven, will be telling us about his experience with the conference's online format. He'll also be delving into the the food frontier, consuming gentrification in Sunset Park Slope in Brooklyn, New York session, which he organized with Lydia Casey Manso. Professor Albers highlights the role played by food in processes both driving and tempering gentrification. He'll also be talking about some of his favorite talks on issues such as housing discrimination or the case of Airbnb in Berlin, which might be leading to anti-social reproduction. This urban political special is a rather atypical episode in regard to its format. In order for us to grant you, our listeners, insights into what happened at RC Twenty One Antwerp shortly after the conference ended, 
we decided to format this podcast episode as a diary. Meaning that afterward, there won't be a discussion between the guests I've just been introducing to you, but short statements from each contributor summarizing their own experiences of the discussion, sessions and keynotes. We hope you enjoyed this episode and thanks to our guests for taking part in this Urban Political Special. The stage is now yours. My name is uh, Steen Oosterlink. I'm a professor in urban sociology at the University of Antwerp and the uh, chair of the Antwerp Urban Studies Institute. And uh, I was this year's together with uh, volunteers and colleagues at the University of Antwerp. I was this year's uh, um, organizer of the RC21 conference. Uh, thank you to Marcus Kip and his team at the Urban Political Podcast. Uh, you sent me some questions. I'm going to try to answer them as uh, good as possible. And, and the first question you asked about the conference is uh, whether I could give some uh, background to the decision to keep the conference entirely digital in 2021. So the conference was uh, it was decided that Antwerp would host the uh, RC21 conference in 2020. And that, of course, was done before everybody has, has ever heard of Corona. So... Um, it was meant to be organized in um, July, early July 2020. And then, of course, when the pan pandemic broke out and it was uh, becoming clear that this was uh, not something that would be over in a couple of weeks, we decided first to postpone the conference to September 2020. So we were rather optimistic about uh, uh, the time that was necessary to get COVID-19 out of the way. And of course, it became very clear already in, in, in June and July 2020 that even September 2020 was not going to be possible to, to have a, a conference. And then we decided in, in, in conversation or in dialogue also with the RC21 board uh, to postpone the conference to July 2021. Uh, and we thought we were, we were going to be safe then to organize a physical uh, conference. And the RC21 board agreed with that, uh, given that we already spent quite some time and, and, and resources preparing for the conference. So the initial idea idea was then to, uh, in July 2021, to, to have the conference, a uh, physical conference. Although we were prepared for different scenarios, and so we had a, a scenario in which the conference, and that was the preferred scenario, the conference was going to be completely physical in July 2021. We had a scenario, which was the worst case scenario, that the, that the conference was going to be fully digital, and there was this, was this scenario in between, which at that point we hoped that this was going to be the scenario in which we finally ended up, is the hybrid scenario in which we would only uh, be able to um, to welcome some people in Antwerp, but not everybody. And so we thought that perhaps it would have been uh, possible to organize a conference with the physical presence of up to 200 people. And we, we, we had in mind that we could invite the keynote speakers and all the session organizers and RC21 board to Antwerp and that all paper presenters and all other participants could be participating um, through online. So... Our preferred scenario was the fully physical conference. Our worst case scenario was the fully digital conference. And uh, what we hoped, what we, we thought was, was probably going to be the, the most likely one was the hybrid scenario in which some people were present and others uh, were not. It became clear in March and April 2021 that traveling would be very difficult, even if in, in the early summer of 2021. And that it would be very difficult to uh, welcome larger groups in university buildings. So the university would not give us any um, any certainty that it was going to be possible to have 100 or 150 people in university buildings. So they said, we cannot say at the moment. And um, in fact, it only became clear in June what was going to be possible. But then, of course, it was too late. 
And around March and April 2021, we decided that, in fact, um, we would go for a fully digital uh, conference. Um, we even attempt. We did even made a last minute attempt to um, to to uh, invite all keynote speakers to Antwerp. So at least we could um, organize the keynote speakers with a more of a live feel, not people uh, calling in from Zoom, but but are in the studio and 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 with some of the uh, perhaps discussions present in the studio that would give a bit more of a live feel. But there was very little appetite amongst the keynote speakers. Understandably, of course, given the difficulties of traveling, there was very little appetite from the keynote speakers to travel to Antwerp. And so we made a final decision that this was going to be a fully digital conference and only the president of the RC21 would be uh, physically present in Antwerp. This was not really a decision, we feel. It was uh, forced on us through the circumstances. We would have liked it to be otherwise. So it is a situation really of our own choosing. So we don't really see that as a decision that we consciously made. This was just the sort of uh, end result of, of, of the, yeah, the circumstances and, and what the little, the little that was possible in these circumstances. So we even had to apply to the university to have 15 volunteers present on campus in uh, a couple of rooms to be able to support the conference. Even that was something that was not self-evident. We had to apply for it. We had to argue that this was really necessary to be able to organize uh, a conference. Your next question is, how did it feel to organize the conference? Also, given that it was apparently very time-consuming to deal with the technical stuff, with hardly any time for participating in the discussion yourself. I think the overarching most dominant feeling that, that we had when organizing this conference was stress. So we find it very stressful to organize this conference. And of course, that's always the case when you organize something. There's always quite a lot of uncertainty involved, things that can go wrong, uh, people that do not turn up in the numbers that you expected. So stress is probably always a part of, of every organizing, every practice of organizing. However, when the actual event comes near, mostly uh, the, the stress changes for excitement if things uh, are... Uh, starting to be become real and, and, and people are turning up and the, the, the event takes off. But I must say we didn't really feel or I didn't really feel the, 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 the same level of excitement that would have been there, I think, if the conference would have been a physical conference. And, and, and stress, I think, changed for relief if we found out on the first day of the event that things were going well, that there were no major technical problems, that people turned up and so on. So I think... Um, the dominant feeling was stress, and then uh, when the event took off and it, it, it went well, relief, but, but the level of excitement which we would have felt if it was going to be an Antwerp uh, didn't, didn't come, didn't really, um, wasn't, really, wasn't really there. I think there are two uh, reasons why, uh, two particular reasons why a digital event is, is stressful to organize. And the first reason is, is that people clearly have a different type of commitment to a digital event. Um, and that became clear, for example, uh, after we closed the uh, late bird deadline. And so the last time at which people could register for the conference, we've sent many emails over the past year to ask people uh, whether they were still committed to the conference, whether they would still be willing to present their paper, to organize their session, whether they would be willing to register and so on. And despite these many emails, in fact, when the late bird deadline closed, we actually found out that was, I think, 10 days or two, two weeks before the start of the conference. We found out that 10% of the people who would present the paper uh, did not register without letting us know uh, anything about whether uh, what the reasons uh, for that. And so it was too late to change the program. And so quite a few papers dropped out, but it was too late to change the, change the program. 
And I think what we learned from that is that, in fact, if, if a conference takes place physically in a particular place, people have to make preparations. They have to look for a hotel, they have to look for, uh, for travel tickets, either with a train or with a plane. And so uh, while doing that, I think they build up a commitment to a certain conference, to coming to a certain place, and that locks them in. I mean, even if they start feeling otherwise if a couple of weeks before the conference, the tickets are booked, uh, they've already looked a bit at the place, and there is already a kind of commitment. And I, we felt as organizers that this is not there if you do um, an, an online event. An online event um, at least gives the impression that you can uh, check in uh, at the very last moment, that you can decide uh, to be part of it or not to be part of it at the very last moment. So that creates... Um, I think a different commitment, but maybe also a, a, a lower commitment to uh, participating in these kind of conferences. And that, of course, is on the part of uh, the organizers pretty stressful because it takes a very, very long time. In fact, all up to the last days before the conference until you know whether people are really uh, have a commitment to come and participate in the conference or not. So that's something that, that really gave us, a, gave us a lot of stress and which would probably be, have been different uh, was it uh, a physical event. Secondly, um, organizing a digital conference makes you uh, makes you uh, very dependent on the technical platform. And we felt after uh, the conference is over, we feel that the conference platform has worked well, that our preparations uh, paid off. Um, but still, there is a, a larger sense of, of a lack of control, of lesser control over the situations in which the conference takes place. If you organize in a physical place, there's a number of things you can do very easily. I mean, you can give access to people, you can open doors, you can let people in, you can tear down a poster if you don't like the message, you can you can uh, put in extra chairs. There's lots of things you can do and you feel you have a sense of control over that physical place in which you organize the conference. This is less the case in a digital platform because a digital platform is not ours. It is a platform which we bought uh, uh, from a company or at least we paid quite a significant sum of money to be able to use this. And you have to work uh, within the parameters that is set by that company. And you also are dependent on, 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 on this platform working well. And there's certain things you can change, there's certain things you can solve. But there are other issues which you cannot solve uh, uh, on, on, on your own. And so I think the participants notice that as well. If you register for a conference, uh, you get a, you, you, you're listed, of course, and when you enter the building, you get a badge and you get an, uh, sort of a sign that you have paid and then you can access the building. With an online conference, this is, of course, rather different. And people will people receive the web link, but the web link was personal, meaning that if you if somebody el- if you let somebody else use that web link, you got kicked out because you cannot use that web link with more than one person, of course. And that created quite a few problems with people uh, being kicked out of a session, not really understanding what was what was going on. So in that sense, it it, it organizing this on a digital platform gives you less a sense of control, uh, a lack of control over the actual environment in which the conference takes place, which of course further adds to the levels of stress and 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 and, and um, uh, in organizing uh, this. I think we had uh, me as as organizer and together with uh, the local organizing team, we had little uh, time to participate. I saw. Uh, a few keynotes and I saw bits and pieces of presentations, but we were too much in the uh, in, in the mood of organizing things and making sure that everything ran smoothly that we didn't get much uh, we didn't get to hear uh, much of the of the conference. But I think that's the same for if you organize a conference physically, you also also are on guard to make sure everything goes smoothly. So I don't think that's particularly uh, specific for uh, an online uh, conference. 
Was the conference a success? Well, that's that's not an easy question to answer because it, it also depends on your uh, your comparison. I think if you compare with other digital events, which I think is the fairer comparison to make, I, I think it was a success. Uh, I think we, we worked hard to make the online platform in more than just a couple of Zoom links with a lobby, with extra features about Antwerp, with uh, a constant stream of messages about what was going on at the conference, also in, in, in people's mailbox. And I think that that made it look more like a, a conference and not just a sort of disjointed set of, of, of sessions and, and, and lectures and so on. The difficulty, of course, with organizing a physical event is that people can be much more selective. And they can come for one keynote session and then uh, not come for the rest of the day. So they're much more selective in, 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 in attending and selecting what they would attend. The danger, of course, is that the overall experience of a conference gets lost because people just pick and choose and, and the overall sense of what a conference is gets a bit lost. Um, but I think we were pretty successful in working against that and making the, making the platform in such a way that people would stay uh, for a longer time, that people would check out sessions and they would have more of a sense that this was an, an, an overall uh, uh, conference. And so what we, from what we have, we've heard from the RC21 board, but also from a, a broad range of participants, is that the conference was, at least as a physical event, uh, pretty uh, successful. Compared to a physical event, a physical conference, of course, I think it was less so, uh, although I wouldn't really uh, like to talk about it in terms of success, but because I f we felt it was important, and maybe that's the right word, it was important to have this conference. For the PhD students, of course, who already missed out on the opportunity to, to, to participate in an RC20 event last year, because there was none, um, but also for the larger RC21 community, who always likes to see itself as a community, well, you need, of course, these events where you get together, and, and you can't just stop this for a longer period of time. So in that sense, I think it was uh, maybe less of a success, but it was, it was important that we have this event, uh, even if, if it wasn't under circumstances we could choose ourselves. It was important that we had this event that marked um, the presence of the existence of the RC21 community and gave the opportunity to uh, exchange and, and meet each other and, and get into dialogue and, and get to see what people had been doing over the past one or two years. The last question is, is what, what do we think about the prospect of having such conferences as digital and a hybrid version? Uh, would you recommend this uh, given your organizing experiences? I personally do not believe in a fully digital conference format. I think it was necessary this time to do it, but if it is not necessary, I would not advise to do it. I think you can, you can have some of the workshops and uh, some of the events could be done digital. Uh, for example, the pre-conference workshop for uh, doctoral students in which they could learn about publishing and, and, and writing in urban studies. This is something, this has a very high level of participation. This could be done digital as well. I think, for example, something like the, the, the CIMI plenary on, on publishing and pre publishing and present, presenting Afri urban studies in Africa or from Africa, that is also something that you could do digitally because there is the added value of being able to involve participants who are not present there, who have difficulties in being present because of the resources needed to travel and so on, you could involve them in a digital format. So I think for specific workshops, for specific events, you could go digital. And perhaps it's an idea of, for the RC21 to organize in between the physical conferences in the year, in between the physical conference, some digital events. I think that could create, could help and support the community. Um, but I do think if you organize a conference that place is important, actual physical place is important. And I think that's the thing that we miss most 
uh, when we were hosting this conference that, that we not been able to show Antwerp to the participant, that we not have been able to give per uh, participants the experience of Antwerp as a city. We are urban researchers after all, so that experience, the context of the city and the context of, of, of the, the experience of traveling to a specific city, I think matters greatly. Uh, as of course, everything that takes place within the conference, being able to physically uh, interact with each other to to get chance encounters with people during coffee breaks and lunches and so on. So, so the way physical places organize people's events uh, on a conference is is really important. So for that reason, I would not uh, I would not advise the RC twenty one to have fully digital conferences. Again, I'm also slightly concerned about the idea of the hybrid conference. Um, we've heard from the people that that did our uh, that are that were recording our live sessions that they are increasingly asked to do hybrid conferences in which the keynote speakers and and sort of most reputable people in the field do not travel to the conference anymore but give their lecture online uh, and this is then shown on, on, on conferences. I'm a little bit concerned about that, although I do see how it may help people who cannot afford traveling and cannot afford conference to, to be to be or for whatever reason cannot are unable to travel to be part of that so I see the added value of that but I'm a bit concerned that that some people may not bother anymore traveling to conferences that especially high profile people with a lot of with big reputation in the field will not bother tra traveling to conferences again and so they will be less accessible for uh, the big bulk of urban researchers that that will have less of an opportunity to bump into these people to, to to strike up a conversation to get into interaction so i'm a little bit concerned about the segregating uh, effects of of, of hybrid uh, conferences and finally i think it will be more difficult uh, if we would go to digital conferences or even hybrid conferences i think it would be more difficult uh, to find people to organize these kind of events um, we were very happy to host the event even was fully digital uh, but it, of course, it has less added value for the local organizing team than having to organize this um, digitally. You, you don't get to invite people to the to the city. You don't get to uh, get get to get get to give people a sense and an experience of the city. Um, and it also is more complex in terms of of digital infrastructure. Also more costly to organize it hybridly or even digitally. So I think if if we would decide to to organize conferences digitally, I think it would be much more difficult to find local organizing teams that want to take up this challenge. Why, why would they if the city and the specific place from which which they organize is is no longer relevant? And I think it would really push conference organizing into a professional activity that is not done by the academics in specific locations themselves, but it would be something that professional organizations do as their as the, as part of their professional activities and i think that would really uh, not enrich at all our, our conference uh, our conference uh, uh, landscape so i would i would really not uh, suggest i would really not advise the rc21 to move to fully digital conferences My name is Elisabeth van Weymers. Um, I'm a postdoc researcher at the University of Antwerp and a member of the Antwerp Urban Studies Institute. And the last couple of months, I have been predominantly preoccupied with organizing this year's RC21 conference. In addition to STEM, I would like to add that apart from the organizational uncertainties in our university, uh, our choice to go fully virtual was um, above all motivated by the fact that we are fully aware that some countries and some academics are much more hit by COVID-19 than others. Um, and I don't think it would have been um, appropriate together with a select few um, 
of academics whose governments were able to to buy vaccines or who are less hit by travel restrictions than others. Um, I think that having a conference online is not the nicest way um, or the most stimulating way to have a conference, but at least uh, in this context, it gives everyone uh, an equal equal chance to participate. Compared to uh, previous RC21 conferences, for example in Delhi and in Leeds, we see that a lot more people uh, registered and attended this year's online conference. Um, if we count only the participants that paid online, um, we count 786 people. Um, this is 290 people more than in Delhi and about 150 people more than in Leeds. Now, I'm not sure whether this high amount of participants is due to the fact that it's an online conference or uh, whether it's because uh, we opened the call for abstracts for a second time. Um, Because we actually received one-fourth of all paper presentations, um, which is about 150 uh, abstracts during the second call for abstracts in in December 2020. I think it's it's an important thing that we have, have reopened the call, um, as we know that the majority of people uh, participating at the conference are early career scholars um, who might not have been able to submit an abstract in the first call. Geographical representation of uh, participants, it might be a bit disappointing to hear that about 70% of the registered participants come from the EU. Um, Unfortunately, I could not compare uh, this data to um, the data of previous conferences um, as um, in previous conferences the students are counted as one uh, category um, regardless whether they come from, for example, Belgium or Nigeria. So I simply uh, missed the data to compare. Apart from that, we would have thought that more people would have participated from North and South America. Um, As we planned the conference uh, on moments during the day, that would have been better for them. Um, But in the end, we see that about 8% of the registered participants uh, were located in South America and about 5% um, in North America. For me, I think it's safe to say that um, the place where a conference is organized, that that really matters, regardless of whether this conference is um, physical or is taking place online. Hello, urban political listeners. My name is Claudia Selding and I'm a Brazilian architect, urbanist and researcher. I am the head of the Cultural and Urban Resistance Lab, or CURL, as we call it, and I am currently a research fellow and guest lecturer at the Center for Metropolitan Studies of the TU Berlin in Germany. I am here today to talk to you a little bit about my perceptions of the RC21 Sensing the City conference that happened this year just a few days ago, and I thank the Urban Political Podcast team for inviting me to do this. So let's get to it. Um, Firstly, I thought that it was a very well-organized conference. We never really know what to expect from these virtual events, 
But the RC21 opted for a wonderful platform, which I personally was already familiar with from previous events. Um, it's an interface that is very user-friendly and it always allows for some personal touches from the organizers. So with the RC21, they had the short videos of places in Antwerp and used names of local venues for the online rooms. That made it a bit special and show us that they really care about making the experience warmer for everybody. Uh, I should also point out that the help desk was fantastic and very friendly throughout the whole event when we had problems or questions. Uh, so that's it for the virtual part of the event. And now for my personal mood, I would say that it was of excitement overall. The program was packed and I was looking forward to finding out if the content was really going to be as diverse as it was uh, advertised. And I have to say that I was pleasantly surprised. Uh, it was not a totally Eurocentric conference, as is sometimes the case. And you really saw people from multiple fields and cities worldwide. Uh, there was an actual knowledge exchange, I would say, going on, and it was extremely rich, at least for me. Uh, I do believe that the general mood of everybody was of enthusiasm as well. Although I have to say I heard from different people that there was just too much information and it was a little bit difficult to focus on just one session sometimes once you first logged in to the platform. Uh, it was my impression that a lot of people wanted to explore it, especially during the first day and kept hopping from one session to another, which could in many ways be seen as a positive aspect of a virtual conference as we wouldn't be able to do this in person. So you, you got to switch and see what was going on at another table, another panel, and that was really nice. Uh, however, I should also highlight that the mood was sometimes very rushed in some of the sessions. The format really worked better for panels with up to three presentations because that allowed for more time to discuss each work and to have proper debates at the end. Uh, my feeling was that the moderators were sometimes afraid that the rooms were going to be shut down. And let's face it, the average 10 minutes per paper is just too short. Uh, we can't really present our ideas very well and talk about more complex research in that amount of time. So, you know, in a lot of sessions, there were no time for debates with the audience or even among the panelists, which was kind of a shame. Uh, that was the case of the session in which I presented, which was called Contested Territories, Epistemological and Methodological Approaches. But we did have some exchanges before the conference. I don't know if that happened uh, with other sessions, but, you know, it's always nice to know that you'll be able to keep in touch with the people and you do learn a little bit about everybody's work. So, you know, even though it was rushed, it was still uh, very fruitful, I would say, and very interesting. But, you know, the, the time was a bit of a downside. Another downside was the fact that some of the keynotes and plenaries happened at the same time of the paper sessions. Now, for my personal research, I thought it was more valuable to watch the paper sessions because they were more closely related to my own work. And it was a possibility to get in touch with more people and find out more about what is being done out there. So I have to say I skipped a lot of the keynotes, but I did manage to watch 11 different sessions in the three days. Uh, I was exhausted by the end of it. I got the feeling that a lot of people who watched a lot of the stuff were also pretty tired, but it was worth it. And I personally learned a lot. Uh, so I would like to now very briefly talk about two sessions, which were my favorites. Um, the first one was the Sound and the City session organized by Professor Sandra Jasper. Uh, it happened on the first day of the conference and it really took me by surprise. I was not planning to watch that. I stumbled upon it by accident. And it was really beautiful. We saw some beautiful work being done, developed by colleagues from various cities on sound or the lack thereof. And the highlight of the entire conference for me came from this session with the presentation, Silencing, a soundtrack of, of resisting city by Manao Masaya. Uh, it centered on Palestine 
and the Israeli bill that seeks to ban the public call to down prayer, limit the volume of loudspeakers in residential areas at all hours, and criminalize those who refuse to comply. And in her presentation, she chose to read a text reflecting on post-colonial legacy, racial hierarchy, and the lines of inclusion-exclusion, while showing us some very impactful and poetic photographs from the attempt to silence Palestinian voices. Um, it was a truly powerful combination of words and images. You could actually feel the silence in the room after she was done, even though it was a virtual venue. Everybody was taken aback, and it was mentioned in the comments. It was a simple yet beautiful expose filled with symbolism and reflected a lot of the political climate that exists in a lot of the cities out of this European uh, North American axis, I would say. Um, the second session that I would like to comment on took place on Friday, the last day of the conference, and it was called Aesthetics, Making Sense of the City. Uh, the presentation that stood out for me the most was entitled Fascism, Urbanism, Aesthetics by Gunther Kastner of the Cardiff University. He discussed in his presentation the parallels between fascism and urbanism through aesthetics, and he talked a little bit about policies against minorities and about how urbanism is susceptible to mass movements. He approached uh, fascism, urbanism as an ideology, as mass mobilization, and as a regime of power. And then he talked about the need to decolonize aesthetics as a concept grounded in European enlightenment. Uh, this is an unpublished research, uh, he told us, and I'm personally really looking forward to it. So these are just two examples of work being done out there, which shows us the importance of urban studies to make sense of our contemporary political and social realities. Many of the panels that I attended talked about the influence of the real estate market and digital platforms on shaping today's cities, while others talked about the persistence of segregation, racism, and exclusion generated by public policies. Uh, I saw some extraordinary empirical research being done on case studies which attempt to break barriers of gender and poverty and some very powerful voices that are coming from outside this usual North American, Western Europe axis, which made me hopeful personally as, as a scholar from Brazil. Uh, all in all, from what I chose to watch, my biggest takeaway from the conference is that there is a tendency of moving towards an urbanism of solidarity, cohesion and care. Those seem to be the underlying lessons from the panels that I really enjoyed. So maybe it's because of the pandemic and the fact that it affected us all, or maybe it is because there is a real shift going on in our field that is enabling us to hear these new voices talking about unequal realities that are invisible to many of us in, in the center of global capitalism. But my takeaway is that a more humane urbanism seemed to be what many of the presenters were advocating for. So, you know, it made me hopeful and I really enjoyed the experience. And I guess that's all from me now. Uh, thank you once again to the Urban Political Podcast team and to our listeners. Uh, I look forward to seeing you in future conferences, hopefully in person. So stay healthy and stay happy. Bye-bye. My name is Roger Kai and I'm a professor at the Faculty of Environmental and Urban Change at York University in Toronto, Canada. I've attended many RC21 meetings around the world since 1992. This one was the first one held remotely. After the disappointment of the cancellation of last year's event, the Antwerp team, led by Stein Osterlink and supported by the RC21 board, went mostly online for this year's postponed conference. By all measures, it was a huge success. The numbers and the active presentation by members from around the world was beyond my expectation. The opening ceremony and keynote by Asha Min brought together several hundred viewers from all continents. It was a remarkable show of community in an urban world, both united 
and separated by the COVID-19 pandemic. The paradoxes of the situation were on full display. While there was no mingling in university hallways and drinks after each day session, the organizers had found a format that allowed most people in most time zones to be in each other's mediated presence. Such immediacy of presence is by no means a valid replacement of personal interaction, but it afforded people who have less means to travel and all of us the chance to be there to present, to debate, to say hello, to be impressed. There was so much diversity at this conference, so much new thinking, so much solidarity across that divided world of ours. RC21 clearly made a case for itself as perhaps the most global, urban and regional meeting of all. And the organization has renewed and reinvented itself without shedding its traditions entirely. So at this conference, even if just remotely, I saw some people with whom I shared the stage at my first RC21 conference in Los Angeles in 1992. And I came away in awe at listening to new colleagues whom I have never met and who are now leading the way for a truly global practice of urban and regional research across the planet. In highlighting the most remarkable experiences of the conference, I want to focus on a series of roundtables on urban COVID-19 governance that I had the privilege to organize by invitation of the organizers. In my short remarks, there is no time to give credit to individual speakers and papers. The names of the 15 contributors and the abstracts of their presentations can be found on the event's website. Based in the UK, Milan, Berlin, New York, Toronto, Sao Paulo, Johannesburg, Melbourne, and Chicago, they spoke to all of those places as well as China and Malaysia. Let me focus on what I believe were overarching, if not uniform, experiences we heard about. Governance has been a central concern in cities and regions during the COVID-19 pandemic that has affected and changed urban life around the globe. In these three roundtables, speakers took stock of the broad range of experiences that shaped urban life since the beginning of 2020. A joint concern across the continents, well, unsurprisingly, the immense burden that historically marginalized urban communities had to carry in this pandemic. That held true across the huge geographical variety of urban regions from Australia to South Africa, Brazil to Canada, from Malaysia to Milan. In the words of one presenter, the pandemic disclosed the systemic inequalities across urban regions. It was made clear by several speakers that those who were not able to afford the strict regimen of the lockdowns and mobility restrictions, those that had to leave their houses to secure their livelihoods, were most negatively affected by the pandemic. It was a matter of class, race and gender. For them, it has been economic and health risks combined. Another common theme was the exposure of layered crises of care that the pandemic brought with it. A set of crises that often became visible on and the responsibility of the municipal level of government and local communities. Some papers noted that while urban governance of COVID-19 revealed cracks during the pandemic, it also allowed for new forms of democratic movements and protests that took, of course, markedly different forms in places such as Malaysia, Toronto or Berlin. Cities themselves got involved in new and recast forms of city diplomacy as existing networks of cities ostensibly founded for other purposes of global urban governance, like climate change, for example, pivoted and turned their attention to the pandemic response. 
The pandemic finally cast a new light on existing spatial divisions, and in many cases, perhaps most prominently in Sao Paulo and Toronto, normally invisible and historically excluded peripheries became hotspots of infection, yet remained underserved in terms of public health services and vaccine rollout. The takeaway from these roundtables is that the pandemic has made more and different types of comparative studies of urban regions worldwide necessary and productive. This type of comparative research, urban research, can now build on shared experience of this enduring health emergency and a joint, if, somewhere, if diverse, commonality and solidarity among researchers around the globe. Nobody was unaffected. The pandemic will remain a joint universal reference point as urban life unfolds further on this urban planet. So much for my dispatch from the virtual Antwerp, from the first remote RC20 conference of my lifetime. Uh, we shall see if it will be the last uh, remote conference. Uh, thanks for now to Urban Political for lending us this space to express our experience and say thanks to the organizers of this event one more time. Hi everyone, I'm Liz Beekmans. Uh, I'm Assistant Professor in Architecture and Urbanism related to Migration and Diversity at Ghent University, Belgium. In my research, I work at the intersection of migration, city and architecture, and uh, in particular, I focus on migrants and refugees, housing and homemaking. I'm really looking forward to the conference. I have to say that I just had a look at the conference platform and it really looks nice. This is really great to start a conference with. I feel really exhausted after this uh, long semester in COVID times, but to see the conference finally being kicked off um, was really a great pleasure. And also to see this very critical discussion between Stein Oosterlink and Talia Blokland was really uh, very fascinating because uh, it's so much actually connected uh, to the topic of sensing sensing uh, the city and um, how to organize and participate in a in an online conference which uh, was supposed to take place uh, in Antwerp. So it was a very good kickoff and it looks all very professional, I have to say. I've just uh, listened uh, and actually also watched the keynote of Ash Amin, who uh, apparently was in Sweden, but I actually connect him more with London. And then he was uh, yeah, talking about uh, New Delhi uh, in an online conference, which uh, was supposed to take place in, in Antwerp. So that was really uh, strange, but very uh, fascinating how things come around. Um, yeah, his, his, his keynote was actually very interesting. Uh, it was on, on migrants' uh, lives, bare lives. Um, in Delhi and how they are pushed to their existential limits and how habitats in many ways offers no hope, quite the opposite, it contributes to their precarious subjectivity, you could say. And uh, he was like wondering how practices of inhabitation um, yeah, uh, and, uh, are, are occurring there and how certain housing support initiatives could overcome 
um, this precarious states. And it was very interesting also for me because I'm doing research on this in, in the context of Belgium, which is a completely other context, but also uh, following a same method, ethnographic uh, and geographical insights and um, methods combining actually. And so he was really uh, pushing us to think uh, the entanglement of the material materialities of place, the, the life experiences and the mental states um, together to, to see these not as separate realms, um, but but look at it together um, and, and how these people um, make the inhabitable habitable. Uh, and he was talking about, yeah, these vernacular practices of endurance um, and and the role of infrastructure, uh, how these people upgrade their neighborhoods uh, with the support of NGOs, um, how um, the neighborhoods, sociabilities um, are structured, the role of NGOs uh, in, in this, and, and these new collectivities, these new um, infrastructures of commoning. Uh, so that was really very interesting um, to see. Also, he explained how COVID actually stigmatized the poor again uh, as carriers of, of disease, uh, which is a very interesting um, point of view because it was actually the rich that has uh, have spread COVID all over the world, but is pushing um, again uh, the poor in, in very um, difficult circumstances, especially uh, where there is overcrowding. Um, so, yeah, it, it was a very interesting lecture and I really enjoyed it. And I think, um, yeah, I will certainly take it with me in the for the next day uh, in my own session on housing and homemaking practices of refugees in Belgium. I just had my own uh, double session, Understanding Refugees' Homemaking uh, Practices and Housing Pathways Against the Backdrop of the Border Housing Question of European Cities uh, that I co-organized with Viviana Doria. And uh, I'm so happy that we really had uh, the right discussions and that we also had very interesting speakers. And uh, yeah, we, we had a great discussion on our positionality within this whole debate on the role of the researcher. Um, on the fact that we are sometimes really over uh, soliciting um, refugees and, and also housing initiatives and, and it's a bit exploitative in the sense that there is actually no uh, real return for them. Um, so how can we think about co-producing -produ knowledge uh, rather than uh, being on this academic island? Uh, so are there actually new ways for transdisciplinary uh, research? Um, and it was really interesting to see how much engaged people were in the discussion and uh, such a good speakers we had. Um, yeah, I think it's also about what the impact of research can actually be and how ambitious we uh, and realistic we need to be. Uh, so it's it was really a great closure of a long day. Um, I'm really longing more and more for holiday, but in the end, I'm very happy, happy that uh, I'm participating in this uh, RC21 conference and also, uh, co, um, yeah, also as a part of uh, the scientific committee. Um, I'm, I'm really thankful for this uh, great uh, invitation.
Hi, my name is Manuel Albers. I'm a professor of human geography at KU Leuven, the University of Leuven in Belgium. I have been attending the RC21 conference Sensing the City in the past couple of days and have enjoyed it quite a bit. Of course, it's always difficult to have an online conference, but in these days, um, it's sometimes difficult to choose between giving in to the Zoom fatigue and saying, let's not have any online meetings anymore, or just saying, let's meet anyway and make the best of it. I think the organizers of the RC21 have tried to make the best of it, and uh, I think by and large they did, a, they did a very good job. I think one of the disadvantages is this with this technology it always fails for some people. So at some point I wasn't able to speak when I wanted to ask a question. At another point, my co-author for my presentation wasn't able to speak. So I had to improvise a little bit and do the presentation on my own. But I think these things are also bound to happen. And even when we have physical conferences, things happen and things don't always go as smooth as they want to. Otherwise, I feel that compared to other online meetings, there was a bit more of a buzz where people felt like something is going on, something interesting, something new. And I think that partly had to do with the way the website or the online platform had been designed. And they made some virtual spaces that sometimes were mirroring physical spaces. So we were meeting in spaces that were mirroring spaces that actually exist in Antwerp. Uh, that may seem a little bit like a gadget, like a novelty, but it actually was quite nice. And I think it worked rather well. Um, at the same time, um they they try to do something in the environment of the website there where you feel like the platform is different than just another zoom uh, some meetings took directly place from the platform and that made it f feel a little bit different there were also t uh, attempts to make uh, make it easier to meet people I didn't meet that many people outside of sessions, but it felt like it was a bit more open than other conference sessions. Perhaps that also has to do with the nature of the RC21, which is sort of interdisciplinary urban studies and people come from different fields. Coming to that conference means you're open to, to perspectives from different disciplines. And I think that's part of the excitement of the RC21. And it's also the reason that even though I don't go every single year, I try to go most years. So impressions of the RC21 in terms of content, well, that is very difficult, of course, because there's so many sessions. And just like with physical conference sessions, sometimes you switch around. And, and one thing that the online experience makes a little bit easier is to actually switch pretty quickly if you want to attend the second paper of one session and then the third of another session. So, of course, yeah, that means you only get a few sessions. So let me reflect on a few things that I found were quite interesting. So... Uh, let's start with my own presentation that was on food and gentrification in Brooklyn, which I did together with my colleague Lydia Manzo, who's based in Milan, but was actually calling in from Dublin, where she does some field work. So we've both lived in Brooklyn for a while and had been studying the role of food and gentrification processes. This is not a topic that's studied a lot. Um, and it was interesting to see that there were a few other papers at the conference that were also looking into these issues. And they were spread out. That was a bit the disadvantage we thought, well, with a theme like sensing the city, it makes sense to think of food, of eating the city. But it turned out there weren't really specific sessions on that. So our paper was in one session and there were two other papers that were reflecting on food and gentrification, but they were in other sessions. And some of the outcomes were quite similar, uh, which was that in some places, ethnic food is actually serving 
as forming a new frontier identification. By ethnic food becoming a destination where people want to go to, neighborhoods can be put on the map in this way and can become destinations for foodies to go to, for people to distinguish themselves among other shows, like I know where the cool restaurants are, I know uh, how to deal with diversity. And that in some places this becomes sort of the beginning of identification, not on its own. It's, it's never just about food, but it is something that is understudied. But in another study, for instance, it looked that um, some of the restaurants were actually being seen as something slowing down identification. People complaining about a chicken shop uh, on their doorstep, for instance, or complaining about other types of foods that they thought were uh, associated with more lower income groups and therefore weren't as attractive to move to the neighborhood. So oddly enough, food can be uh, something that helps identification go along or it can stop it. Another interesting thing uh, that I noticed that was that there were uh, several sessions on discrimination in housing. And when I was looking, uh, when I was starting my PhD in 2002, discrimination was an issue I was very interested in. And it seemed that in the United States, a lot of people in urban studies were researching housing discrimination. But in Europe, people were just saying like, oh, that doesn't happen here. That's something that happens in the US, in South Africa. Uh, but that's not something that happens in Europe. It's just about people having a lower income and therefore they have fewer choices. But it was basically all about people sorting together and their income sorting them. And quite a denial actually of actually existing discrimination, which I found quite frustrating at the time. Now there was there were a number of presentations that especially looked at discrimination in rental markets. And all of those studies showed that some discrimination in rental markets was taking place. Uh, but it was not as obvious to say like, oh, um, all the landlords or all the agents are discriminating. A lot of the studies were actually focusing on agents renting out units on behalf of landlords. And they showed that even though not all uh, these agents were discriminating, several of them were. And we could see different divides there. So you would think like, well, maybe they're doing this more in rich neighborhoods um, where they might want to keep poorer people out, which would include a larger share of ethnic minorities. And in some places that seemed to be taking place. And some of the agents were also saying like, well, we're not discriminating, but we're doing it because the landlords want us to do it. They don't want these people here, whatever that means. Uh, but in other cases, it was really dependent. One agent might be doing it, the other might not. Uh, in some rural places, it happened more than some ur urban places. Um, but uh, there were really quite some big differences between uh, what was going on uh, and also the different neighborhoods where this was taking place how it was taking place uh, and these were also differences between different places so this was research being reported from belgium the netherlands france switzerland germany so very much northwestern europe so very much concentrated in one part of the world but exactly the part of the world where 15 to 20 years ago people were saying discrimination isn't really a thing so that's another interesting thing uh, that i think was, was interesting to attend some sessions on uh, a few other things that i really enjoyed there were some sessions uh, highlighting the work of anna Haila, who is a who was a professor uh, into Helsinki University who died two years ago and she worked a lot on questions of housing, land and she always studied 
Helsinki quite a bit, but also places in East and Southeast Asia. And there were different people reflecting on how her work would still be useful to understand cities today. And um, yeah, it was quite nice to see how people were honoring her work uh, by making her ADs and extending them to new cases, um, to new things going on as well. Another interesting set of sessions, I think, had to do with uh, Airbnb touristification and things like that. And there was one presentation in particular that I thought was very interesting, which was by Augustine Coccola-Gant, who is becoming, um, I could say, one of the main scholars on things like Airbnb and platforms. And he was showing clearly that Airbnb is no longer just something small scale. It's big companies who do this. They are emanating also the hotel industry. They're outsourcing part of the management. Um, they're using new platforms themselves that try to optimize the use of this. And in a way, you can see there's a whole industry growing on top of Airbnb. The talk was always about like landlords and maybe not small ones buying up a few units and renting them out. And then Airbnb making a lot of money. Now there's actually platforms that are active internationally, having a whole business model built on Airbnb. So I thought that was also very interesting. And that's definitely a topic that we're going to hear more about in the future. So my key takeaway, um, well, Urban Studies is still alive and kicking despite the fact that during the lockdown it was difficult to do research and difficult to meet. And I think it will, um, it's going to be interesting to see in the coming years what's going to happen after COVID, how this is going to affect inequalities in cities, discrimination, also the tourism industry picking up again, Airbnb picking up again, and gentrification in some places we already see is going at a higher speed. So many of these topics are at least of as much relevance today uh, as they were before the COVID pandemic. And next year, the conference is going to be in Athens. And uh, I'm not sure if I'm going yet, but many years I do go. And it would be really nice if uh, we could meet in person again, because everyone agreed that that is still a much better way to do it. Thank you very much and have a nice day. That was it from our guests. Thank you so much to each and every one of you for taking the time to participate in this Urban Political Special on RC21 Antwerp. To everyone listening, I hope you enjoyed the conference insights. And now, all I have to say is... Thanks to you for listening. For more information, visit our website urbanpolitical.podigy.io Please subscribe and follow us on Twitter.